Welcome to Heightened Scrutiny, a podcast about the Supreme Court and civil rights. I'm Joe Dunman. The Bill of Rights begins with the First Amendment, and the First Amendment begins with this sentence, Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. But what if a law meant to address a larger societal problem incidentally infringes on a religious practice? Does the government have to step aside? If so, what's the limit? Does the First Amendment require that any religious practice has to be allowed just because it's religious? This is Employment Division v. Smith, the Religious Peyote Case. In the late 1980s, Alfred Smith and Galen Black worked as drug counselors for a private rehab organization in Oregon. Smith and Black were also members of the Native American church. As part of their church's normal religious practices, both Smith and Black periodically ingested the drug peyote. Peyote is a hallucinogen. It is also designated as a controlled substance under Schedule 1 of the Federal Controlled Substances Act and is illegal both federally and in Oregon. Both Smith and Black were fired from their jobs for violating their employer's rule against drug use by drug counselors. After being fired, they both applied for unemployment benefits from the state of Oregon, but were denied. In Oregon and most other states, unemployment benefits can be denied if a worker is fired for, quote, misconduct. The definition of workplace misconduct includes several forms of bad behavior, such as breaking an employer's uniformly enforced rules or the use of illegal drugs. So Oregon denied the benefits claims of Smith and Black because they were fired from their jobs for misconduct. But Smith and Black appealed the denial, arguing that even though they used drugs, And even though drug use is considered misconduct, they should not have been denied because their drug use was part of their religious practices as members of the Native American church. Their appeal first reached the U.S. Supreme Court in 1988, but the court sent the case back to Oregon to address an unresolved question of state law. Then in 1989, after the Oregon Supreme Court ruled that the denial of the unemployment benefits violated the free exercise rights of Smith and Black under the First Amendment, the U.S. Supreme Court once again took up the case. Oregon argued that it did not actually violate Smith and Black's First Amendment rights for several reasons. First, the prohibition of drug use is general. It does not target any particular religion and does not single out any particular religious practice for punishment. Two, peyote, under both state and federal law, is considered a dangerous drug that poses a serious threat to public health and safety. As a hallucinogen, it can seriously alter human perception and consciousness and thus poses a variety of safety risks. Third, forcing the state to give an accommodation for drug use to one religion will open the floodgates for others to demand accommodations and ultimately negate the laws against drugs entirely. And fourth, giving an accommodation to one church but not others would actually violate the other half of the first sentence of the First Amendment, the clause against an establishment of religion. Government should be neutral toward religion, Oregon argued, and thus granting a drug use accommodation to one church would be to give it special treatment. Smith and Black's counter-argument was simpler. Denying unemployment benefits effectively punished them for their sincerely held religious beliefs, which the First Amendment prohibits. And in prior cases, like Sherbert v. Verner from 1963, the Supreme Court held that the government can only infringe the free exercise of religion if it has a compelling reason to do so, and the government has no other choice. The Sherbert test, as it was known, went like this. First, the court asked whether a law or government action actually burdened the free exercise of a religious belief. Punishments, or the denial of benefits, such as unemployment benefits, could be considered burdens. 
If a law or government action did impose such a burden, the court in Sherbert said that the burden could only be constitutional if it was justified by a compelling state interest and no alternate form of regulation could avoid the infringement and serve the government interest. For example, even if a religious group sincerely believed that human sacrifice was absolutely necessary to achieve their religious salvation, the government could still ban it because such conduct threatens human life and no alternative form of regulation could prevent the harm. Public health and safety and the protection of individual human life are compelling government interests. So, relying heavily on the Sherbert test in their case, Smith and Black argued that their religious free exercise was severely burdened by the denial of their unemployment benefits, and that there was no compelling purpose to punish the religious use of peyote because it was limited, supervised, and ultimately not dangerous to them or to the public. Oral argument was held on November 6, 1989. Chief Justice William Rehnquist presiding. We'll hear argument next, number 88-1213, Employment Division, Oregon versus Alfred Smith. At oral argument, Oregon was represented by Attorney General David Frohmeyer. He took an interesting approach. He could have contested Smith's argument that Oregon even needed a compelling interest at all to deny unemployment benefits for the religious use of peyote. Instead, Frohmeyer conceded that standard to a certain extent and said that Oregon did in fact have a compelling interest. Three of them, actually. The first is the state's interest in regulating all peyote and hallucinogenic drug use to, in order to further the health and safety interests of its citizens. The second is the state's interest in a regulatory scheme as a whole so that law enforcement does not face a patchwork of exemptions of other drugs on a drug-by-drug, religion-by-religion, believer-by-believer basis. And the third and compelling interest is that the state constitution's heightened requirement of neutrality in our jurisdiction requires it to avoid giving the preference of one church over another. In response to Fraunmeier's first point about peyote being a dangerous drug, Justice Kennedy tried to determine if there's any connection between the use of peyote in religious ceremonies and the larger secular trade of illegal drugs. Government's interest in controlling peyote and similar hallucinogens is real, it is compelling, and it's evident by universal and pervasive regulation. There are other religions using peyote, and there are other religions using other drugs which also clamor for First Amendment constitutional exemption. Is there any documentation in the record or in reported uh, opinions uh, of a danger that peyote is diverted from religious use and they sold on the street in the normal drug distribution channels? Uh, Justice Kennedy, we know that it is found in normal uh, drug distribution channels, although not, not in great amounts. Is it, uh, is it used for the derivative mescaline, which in turn is uh, used commercially, or can you get mescaline from some other source? Uh, mescaline, as we understand it, can be produced synthetically, as well as, of course, being found as the psychoactive ingredient in peyote itself. Uh, and in fact, the, the only thing that distinguishes peyote from mescaline is the presence of alkaloids in a natural uh, way in the peyote button, which uh, does create additional uh, effects on the particular user. Does this record show the presence of peyote buttons in the normal drug uh, trade in any significant amounts? Uh, the best evidence for that is in uh, material at least tangential to the record and in other lower court uh, proceedings, which shows that the DEA has seized some 19 pounds, I believe is the figure, uh, over perhaps the period of a decade. From so whom? that shows at least from, from whom? Uh, from sources apparently other than Native Americans. So even Oregon admitted that there was no direct connection between the use of peyote by the Native American church and the larger illegal drug trade. 
But that was irrelevant, according to Frommeyer, because the state of Oregon also had a compelling interest in maintaining a consistent drug policy that shouldn't have one exception for one religion, and another for a different religion, and yet another for a third religion. Essentially, this was the slippery slope argument that if an exception for peyote was made for Smith, other groups may have sought other exceptions, and before long, drug use would have become effectively legal despite the general prohibition. And this desire not to carve various exceptions into the state's drug laws was also motivated by religious neutrality, which is required under the Establishment Clause of the First Amendment. In other words, if an exception was made for peyote, but not for other drugs or other religions, it could be considered a governmental preference for Smith's Native American religion. But would an exemption to the drug laws, designed to protect religious free exercise, really be an endorsement? Does the government endorse a religion by allowing people to practice it? This philosophical question arises throughout the oral argument in this case. Justice John Paul Stevens first pointed out that lots of other states did in fact make such exemptions, without implicating the Establishment Clause. And then Justices Sandra Day O'Connor and Byron White follow up. The legislature in its plenary judgment has singled out a specific church. We believe it has, in many respects, potentially run afoul of the Establishment Clause unless it treats other uh, religions clamoring for equal treatment on similar grounds in similar ways. Are you arguing that the 23, or it isn't 23 under your figures, but whatever the number of states is that grant exemption, those exemptions all violate the Establishment Clause? Uh, No, we are not. We did not come to this court to argue that giving an exemption in some form or another is an impermissible state act in the exercise of its plenary authority. Our argument is simply that the free exercise clause does not command every state in this union, as apparently our Oregon Supreme Court would command, to craft an exemption singling out a specific church. Some of those state exemptions, as we pointed out, uh, Justice Stevens, do speak neutrally with respect to bona fide religious practices. But some don't, and those that don't, you would say, are invalid under the Establishment Clause. I think we would need to know more, and what more we would need to know is whether, if a court were faced with a claim by another religion that notwithstanding the specific named claim of the, of, of the particular communities of one church, if it denied it to another, then perhaps that might implicate the Establishment Clause, because it would have closed the door to others achieving this equally. So I, I believe that our position is that we would have to wait for a case-by-case determination to see whether those jurisdictions would open their doors to other claims if properly advanced by other religions. Those problems. I'm sorry, Justin. You just don't want to have to face up to those uh, problems. You want to be able to... Uh Uh, not to have any exemption at all. That's correct, and this is not a theoretical issue for the state of Oregon because we have pending in our appellate courts uh, a case which in many ways is on all fours with this in which sincere religious communicants who believe that their use of marijuana is religiously inspired have asked for exemption from Oregon's drug laws. And that's part of the problem. Fronmeyer's argument about the state of Oregon wanting to maintain a consistent flat rule drug policy was a relatively strong one, at least to the ears of most of the justices. But there's one problem with drug policy in America, both federally and at the state level. When it comes to the dangers posed by certain drugs, what we prohibit and what we allow is not very consistent at all, a fact which prompted Justice Stevens to chime in again. Your your flat rule uh, position would permit a state to outlaw totally the use of alcohol, including wine in in religious ceremonies? That's a different question. Why is that different? Uh, The issue of sacramental wine is different because, at least at the present, it is not a Schedule I substance. But the the state certainly could prohibit the the consumption of alcohol within its borders, or at least the sale or use of alcohol. 
But there, there might be a religious accommodation argument of an entirely different order than is presented here. Just, you mean it's just a, a better-known religion? No. It has nothing to do with it. It is religion indifferent. Well, uh, even during prohibition, uh, there was a statutory exemption for the yes, use of was, What I'm asking is, supposing a state did not uh, give that statutory exemption? There, there, an argument for accommodation is stronger, stronger in at least two respects. First is that, there, that to the extent that this Court examines or re-examines the nature of the compelling state interest and the potential danger of the ingestion of sacramental wine in small quantities, it might, might well question whether the state's overall interest in regulation of a very dangerous substance so is in fact a Schedule concerned. 4 substance would be a different case. It could be a different case. Fronmeyer's attempt to distinguish small doses of alcohol in Christian ceremonies from small doses of peyote in Native American ceremonies didn't seem to convince Justice Stevens. So Fronmeyer fell back to the designation of peyote as a Schedule One drug and the designation of alcohol as a less regulated Schedule Four drug as a reason why a state is allowed to ban peyote but might not be allowed to prohibit the use of alcohol in religious ceremonies. But this argument is circular to an extent. Essentially, Fraunmeier argued that the constitutional protection of religious free exercise depends on how a legislature classifies and regulates the substances to be used in religious ceremonies, even if a substance it allows is more dangerous than one it does not allow. All that matters is the classification, and the classification is left entirely to the rational discretion of the legislature. It doesn't have to be perfect or even totally accurate. But the classifications of certain drugs as illegal and others as legal aren't just based on concern for public safety. As Justice Stevens alluded, part of the reason alcohol is less strictly regulated is because it's popular among a majority of Americans and used as part of a popular religious ritual, such as the mainstream Christian ritual of communion. Peyote, by contrast, is used by a very small minority in religious ceremonies that are far less popular. Now, changing subjects a bit, Justice Anthony Kennedy asked Frommeyer to address one of Smith's arguments, that punishing him and other Native Americans for the religious use of peyote will effectively destroy their religion. Justices Scalia and O'Connor soon join in. Uh, you, you do concede, I take it, that the enforcement of the Oregon criminal laws would, in effect, destroy the Native American church and its ritual in your state? We don't concede that, Justice Kennedy, for a very practical reason. The Oregon criminal prohibition, construed as constitutional by the Oregon uh, Court of Appeals since State versus Soto, has been on the books for more than a decade. There is no suggestion in our state that that religion has been destroyed by inappropriate police uh, intrusion into the teepee ceremony. In you most know, what of you the mean by inappropriate police intrusion? You're, you're, you're asserting that they have the right to intrude. If they haven't been destroyed, it's just that you've had inefficient enforcement. We've, we have had priorities in police enforcement that are understandable in terms of what is at stake. This district... That's, that's the reason. Well, are you, are you there saying may be you're not going to enforce the criminal law if we sustain it? No, we're not saying that. We are saying that reading carefully and thoughtfully footnote three of the Oregon Supreme Court's opinion on remand... Uh, as Justice O'Connor has called to our, uh, the Court's attention, uh, there may be, in the specific context of the specific use by a person accused of a specific crime, special state constitutional restrictions on the state which have not yet been explored. We do not know the contours of those exemptions. But moreover, to answer your question generally... If, if, if the contour is just to forgive or exempt... Uh, the use of peyote by members of the Native American Church, you would then be back here arguing that that violates the Establishment Clause. If the defense were that the specific church and that church only was entitled to the exemption, that would very probably be the case, Justice O'Connor. 
try to enforce the law to the extent that, that some a drug counselor who violates his uh, employer's rules uh, isn't protected, for, uh, doesn't get unemployment compensation. Yes, Justice White, it's so intuitively obvious that drug counselors ought not to be partaking of the substances which they are asking others to refrain from, that of course we would. Fraunmeier ended his argument there and turned the lectern over to Craig Dorsey, who argued for Smith and Black. Dorsey started by returning the Justice Stevens' line of questioning about the difference between alcohol and peyote. Peyote, Dorsey said, is not as dangerous as people think, and certainly not as dangerous as alcohol. Thus, Oregon's interest in banning it was not as compelling as they claimed. The problem here, according to Dorsey, was really an ethnocentric one. The designation of peyote as a Schedule I drug was as much a cultural determination as it was a medical or safety one. But Justice Scalia pushes back. I think if you looked at this situation and Indian people were in charge of the United States right now or in charge of government, and you look at the devastating impact that alcohol has had on Indian people and Indian tribes through the history of the United States, you might find that alcohol was a Schedule I substance and peyote was not listed at all. And we're getting here to the heart of an ethnocentric view, I think, of what constitutes religion in the United States. And I think that needs to be looked at very hard before determining what is a dangerous substance and what is not. Well, it, it couldn't it be that, that, the, uh, that the exception that the Oregon court was referring to might have been an exception for the use of, of peyote in insignificant quantities that could could not produce any uh, hallucinogenic or, or other adverse physical effect. Might not that be the exception that they were referring to? And if that's the case, then, uh, then you're pointing to uh, the traditional use of uh, wine at uh, religion services would not make any difference. I, 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 I don't assume that the states would be compelled to allow excessive use of alcohol, drunken, drunken parties on, on, under, on grounds of religion. I don't think that that's the... Well, that's correct, and that interest still exists here, for instance, for people who might overuse alcohol in a religious ceremony or, for instance, if communion is administered to minors or some other situation in which a state has a legitimate interest. Yeah, but, you see, I, I don't see a correlation between, between the wine and the peyote. I mean, it, it's acknowledged that the peyote... Do you disagree with what, uh, what the Attorney General said, that the, that the whole purpose of the ingestion of the peyote is its hallucinogenic effect? No, I do not disagree with that. What I disagree with is the fact that that ingestion is harmful. There is no documented evidence that the use of the peyote in these carefully circumscribed ceremonials has any harm to the individual, to society at large, or to the state's law enforcement effort. How did it get to be a Schedule I controlled substance? Well, I think I mean, it somebody has... thinks it's harmful. And once again, the argument Justice Scalia was articulating is a bit circular, as Dorsey tries to point out. Alcohol, which is highly addictive and directly contributes to thousands and thousands of deaths and injuries each year, is less regulated than peyote, which, according to prominent medical research, is neither deadly nor particularly addictive. Peyote was banned, but alcohol was allowed simply because Congress wanted it that way. It was an exercise of legislative discretion. Congress decided, for whatever reason, that peyote should be more restricted than alcohol. 
Now, constitutionally speaking, the Supreme Court has never recognized a standalone right to use drugs or any other particular psychoactive substances. The Constitution itself speaks of a right to religious worship and the First Amendment, and of a right to due process under the Fifth and Fourteenth Amendments, but neither of those have been interpreted to include a right to use any substance a person wants to use. So the government can generally ban, or not ban, whatever drugs it wants to ban as long as there is at least some kind of rational connection to a legitimate purpose, such as public health and welfare. The government doesn't need to prove that alcohol is less dangerous to justify its stricter control of peyote. It just needs to have some generally legitimate concern. And vice versa, it doesn't need to prove alcohol is harmless in order to regulate it more loosely than other drugs. Whether or not peyote is really all that dangerous doesn't really matter for the purposes of whether or not the government can ban it in general. But the issue in this case is whether the denial of Smith's benefits for using peyote infringed his right to practice his religion. And under the test from Sherbert v. Werner, Mr. Smith should not have been denied his unemployment benefits because religious peyote use is not particularly dangerous to public health. Thus, the government didn't have a compelling reason to infringe Smith's religious rights by punishing him for using peyote. If all this nuance seems confusing, it is. Just bear in mind that the question in the case was not whether peyote should be legal or illegal in general, only whether Oregon's denial of benefits for using peyote in a religious ceremony burdened Smith's right to free exercise, and if so, whether there was a good enough reason to justify that burden. Dorsey repeatedly made the case that Oregon didn't have a good enough reason because peyote use in the Native American church is not actually harmful, but Justice Scalia challenges him once again. A, a very good case could, could be made on, on the basis of what you say, that, that there's no risk of, of its use spreading beyond the Native American church. That's correct and that that church has been responsible in its use. But why can't the state say, we don't want Native American church members to use it either. We think this is dangerous. It is harmful to people. We don't want children to be brought into this church and taught to use this thing. It is harmful to them. It's a Schedule One substance. We've made that determination. Because the First Amendment, I believe, requires something more than a mere legislative statement that we believe it may be harmful. States can come up with all kinds of reasons to outlaw all kinds of conduct, as we cited in our supplemental brief, for instance, that the driving of Amish buggies without the reflector warning system is certainly a dangerous act. But if you allow the mere legislative proscription without an actual inquiry into whether harm has in fact occurred, then you are... Excuse me, what do you mean, in fact, occurred? You, you would not accept uh, uh, scientific evidence that, uh, that the use of, uh, of peyote is, is physically harmful? I would not accept in general. that. The, you, 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 would, the, you would require the showing in the particular context of the religious service? Not in the context of the religious service. The evidence is divided. The evidence is particularly divided in respect to this church, however. There is reliable scientific evidence that the use of peyote in the ceremony of the Native American church contributes to rehabilitation of people who have problems with drug and alcohol abuse. So the evidence is mixed. There is no evidence that anyone, and we need to keep repeating this, over 300 years or more has ever suffered harm. Justice Byron White then turned to the Establishment Clause issue raised earlier by David Fraunmeier. If the Native American Church in Oregon gets an exemption from the drug laws for its religious practices, wouldn't any other religious groups be entitled to exceptions? Where does it end? Wouldn't you think that uh, the same exemption would be required for other, other sincere uh, 
claims that uh, they use the peyote as part of their religion? Well, I have two points of response to that. Yes, I do believe it would be required under normal constitutional analysis for other peyote churches, such as the Peyote Way Church of God, which have the same exact conditions that the Native American church does. Mm -hmm. And there are a number of conditions that go to that that show that this church or the use of peyote is unique. However, How about I, marijuana use by uh, a church that um, uses that as part of its religious um, well, sacrament? See, I think we can get into a lot of examples, and I don't want to go down that road too far because we go. don't have the facts here. But the fact is, in a number of courts have looked at marijuana, and they have concluded that marijuana contributes substantially to the law enforcement problem. That has been the distinguishing factor in a number of cases. This drug does not contribute to the law enforcement problem. This substance is used by us as used in its sacramental purposes by the church does not cause those problems. As you heard, Justice O'Connor presented Dorsey with a slippery slope. If the court allowed an exception for peyote, why stop there? What about other drugs? Dorsey attempted to distinguish peyote from marijuana, suggesting marijuana is a gateway drug, while peyote, at least used in religious ceremonies, is not. But there Dorsey runs into a problem. He was essentially conceding that the government can simply declare a law enforcement problem with one drug but not with another. But if the legislature can say marijuana use creates a law enforcement problem with little evidence to support it and thus can prohibit its use in religious ceremonies, why can't it do that with peyote? Justice Scalia points this out. This substance is used by us as used in its sacramental purposes by the church does not cause those problems. Only because the law is not enforced. I mean, well, why is if, it, if it occurs on the reservation and the law enforcement authorities say it, it, it can occur, I'm, I'm, I'm not, well, no, I'm not, not comforted by the, the fact law that it doesn't enforced. cause a law enforcement problem. I don't know what that means. Well, what it means is it doesn't contribute to the use of other drugs. It doesn't undermine the, the federal government or the nation's law enforcement efforts for other drugs. It doesn't get into the distribution system it's not one of the drugs that is looked to by other people as a recreational uh, substance. But why can't the state consider it itself as the law enforcement problem? Peyote the very itself? use even in religious services. Just well, as the state may consider the very use of marijuana, regardless of whether it pollutes commerce or anything else, as being itself a problem. We don't want it used. The why state can look at it as the problem itself, but we're... It is my position, strongly, that they have to justify that position by showing some actual harm. Otherwise, there would really be no free exercise right because the state could outlaw any kind of conduct and say... So long as it does it generally, I think, why isn't that right? So long, so as, long it as it does it generally and doesn't pick on a particular religion. It has a generally applicable law for good and sufficient reasons. Now, the problem is, is this law and the neutral, quote-unquote, prescription does affect a particular re religion only. Justice Scalia made a key distinction there. Clearly a law that singles out a specific religious community for different treatment, or a law that specifically targets one religion's practices, would be unconstitutional. But what if a law just happens to infringe a religious practice, perhaps by accident? 
Maybe a law against littering, passed because a community thinks littering for any reason is bad, infringes on the religious practices of a cult of litterers. Does that make the littering law unconstitutional? Should the cult of litterers get an exception to the law carved out just for them? Dorsey said the way to resolve this problem is to look for harm. If the religious practice causes actual harm to others, then it can be burdened. Otherwise, an exception should be made because neutral laws are not always neutral in their impact. A neutrally written law can still infringe a right or unjustly discriminate when it is applied. After a brief rebuttal by David Frommeyer, the court concluded oral argument in Employment Division v. Smith. Would it apply the Sherbert test and protect the right to use peyote as part of religious free exercise, or would it reverse the Oregon Supreme Court and hold that the free exercise clause is not violated by a law that applies to everyone? On April 17, 1990, the Supreme Court ruled 6-3 against Smith and Black, and it held that the First Amendment was not a shield for those whose religious practices involved the use of illegal drugs. Justice Sandra Day O'Connor concurred only in the judgment, and liberal Justice Harry Blackman dissented, joined by Justices William Brennan and Thurgood Marshall. Justice Scalia, a Reagan appointee and a devoted Catholic, announced the majority opinion of the court. The issue currently before us is whether Oregon's criminal law against the use of certain mind-altering drugs including peyote, can constitutionally be applied to the respondent's sacramental use of peyote in ceremonies of the Native American Church. The Oregon Supreme Court held that because of the free exercise clause of the First Amendment, it could not. We reverse that judgment. The First Amendment prevents the government from, quote, prohibiting the free exercise of religion, close quote. Our cases establish that this prevents the government from penalizing adherence to a religious position or the profession of a religious belief. It also prevents the government from penalizing an action only because that action is taken for religious reasons or only because of the religious beliefs that action displays. But respondents seek to carry the meaning of prohibiting the free exercise of religion one large step further. They contend that a religious motivation for engaging in legally prohibited action or for failing to take legally required action places the citizen beyond the reach of a law that is not specifically directed at his religious practice and that is conceitedly constitutional as applied to others. We reject that interpretation. Respondents' contention that our precedent requires a religious practice exemption to generally applicable laws is mistaken. A long line of our decisions has held that an individual's religious beliefs do not exclude him from compliance with an otherwise valid law prohibiting conduct that the state is free to regulate. For example, laws prohibiting polygamy, laws regulating the use of child labor, laws requiring individuals to perform military service, and laws compelling individuals to pay taxes. We reject respondents' argument that governmental actions burdening religion must be justified by a compelling governmental interest. The government's ability to enforce its criminal laws, like its ability to carry out other aspects of public policy, cannot depend on measuring the effects of a governmental action on a religious objector's spiritual development. To make an individual's obligation to obey such a law contingent upon the law's coincidence with his religious beliefs, except where the state's interest is compelling, permitting him by virtue of his, of his beliefs to become a law unto himself, contradicts both constitutional tradition and common sense. In his full written opinion, Justice Scalia would use even stronger language to reject the old Sherbert test, which applied strict scrutiny to any laws burdening religious practices, no matter how neutral. Any society adopting such a system, Scalia wrote, would be courting anarchy. Apparently taking Justice Scalia's grave warning as a dare, Democratic Congress members Chuck Schumer of New York and Ted Kennedy of Massachusetts introduced legislation to counteract Employment Division v. Smith and impose a tougher standard in free exercise cases. 
Cruising on outrage among both religious conservatives and social liberals toward the Smith decision, Congress seized the moment. In 1993, the Religious Freedom Restoration Act passed nearly unanimously in both houses of Congress. President Bill Clinton signed the bipartisan bill into law that November. We all have a shared desire here to protect perhaps the most precious of all American liberties, religious freedom. Usually the signing of legislation by a president is a ministerial act, often a quiet ending to a turbulent legislative process. Today this event assumes a more majestic quality because of our ability together to affirm the historic role that people of faith have played in the history of this country and the constitutional protections those who profess and express their faith have always demanded and cherished. The power to reverse legislation by legislation, a decision of the United States Supreme Court, is a power that is rightly, hesitantly, and infrequently exercised by the United States Congress. But this is an issue in which that extraordinary measure was clearly called for. As the Vice President said, this act reverses the Supreme Court's decision, Employment Division against Smith, and reestablishes a standard that better protects all Americans of all faiths in the exercise of their religion, in a way that I am convinced is far more consistent with the intent of the founders of this nation than the Supreme Court decision. More than 50 cases have been decided against individuals making religious claims against government action since that decision was handed down. This act will help to reverse that trend by honoring the principle that our laws and institutions should not impede or hinder, but rather should protect and preserve fundamental religious liberties. RIFRA, as the law is now widely known, codified the Sherbert Compelling Interest Test for burdens placed on religious exercise. The law reads, quote, Government shall not substantially burden a person's exercise of religion, even if the burden results from a rule of general applicability. Furthermore, quote, Government may only substantially burden a person's religious exercise if government has a compelling interest and the burden is the least restrictive means of furthering that interest. Despite what President Clinton said at the time, however, RIFRA doesn't really reverse the Supreme Court's decision in Employment Division v. Smith. That case still remains good law in First Amendment free exercise cases. What RIFRA does is give religious plaintiffs a different way to sue the government for burdening their religious beliefs. Rather than file a constitutional claim under the First Amendment, they can now sue under RIFRA. Remember that the government is free to pass laws that provide more rights or protections to citizens than those found in the Constitution. The Constitution only prevents the government from protecting fewer rights. It's a floor, not a ceiling. So now, religious plaintiffs who sue under RIFRA can hold the government to a tougher standard than the Constitution alone requires. Now, the impact of RIFRA has been profound. In a weird twist of political fate, an act originally introduced by Democratic members of Congress and signed into law by a Democratic president is now associated with, and most heavily promoted by, cultural conservatives in the Republican Party. Why is that? According to law professor Robert Delahunty and others, the Reaganite conservative thinking in the late 1980s, to which Justice Scalia was perhaps seen as adherent, was that the major religious institutions in America, the Catholic and Protestant Christian churches, were the ones with the most power over federal and state laws. So you didn't need to carve out free exercise exceptions to general laws, because those laws already reflected the will of the majority religions. The only people seeking religious exceptions belonged to minority religions like the Native American Church or the Jehovah's Witnesses, and their claims weren't seen as important. 
But by the early 1990s, the Democrats had control of both houses of Congress and the presidency, and an increased concern for minority rights was blossoming. At the same time, conservative fear of being relegated to minority status by a new wave of religious diversity began to grow. Since then, America has seen a loosening of the hold of conservative Christianity on state and federal law. The demise of anti-sodomy laws in 2003 in the case of Lawrence v. Texas, as well as the proliferation of anti-discrimination laws and ordinances protecting sexual orientation are key examples. Thus, RIFRA was embraced by conservatives as a way to retain their moral influence on politics, or at least to not have to follow liberal policies to which they morally object. After the Supreme Court ruled in a 1997 case called City of Bern v. Flores that the federal RIFRA didn't apply to the states, many states, led mostly by Republican legislators and governors, passed their own versions of the law. For example, Indiana passed its own version of RIFRA in March 2015. Its robust language did not just codify the Sherbert test, however. It also created a defense for religious objectors to use in judicial or administrative proceedings involving violations of state or local civil rights laws. The Indiana law received widespread national criticism as an attempt to legalize anti-gay discrimination. As for the federal RIFRA, the Supreme Court caused even more controversy with the way it recently interpreted it in the 2014 case of Burwell v. Hobby Lobby. An entire episode of heightened scrutiny could be dedicated to this case, but the short of it is this. The Affordable Care Act, also known as Obamacare, required for-profit companies to ensure access to contraceptives in their health care plans. But the Green family, owners of Hobby Lobby, argued that their conservative Christian beliefs were not just intertwined with their business, but also substantially burdened by this contraceptive mandate, and they sued under the federal RIFRA. The federal RIFRA, as noted earlier, prohibits the government from substantially burdening, quote, a person's exercise of religion. But the law itself doesn't define person. In Hobby Lobby, the Supreme Court ruled that person, for the purposes of RIFRA and consistent with other provisions in federal law, includes closely held corporations like Hobby Lobby, and thus, Hobby Lobby could sue under RIFRA. And the Supreme Court also ruled that the contraceptive mandate, though neutral in its application and not meant to target any specific religious belief, substantially burdened Hobby Lobby's religious exercise. In a major ruling today, the Supreme Court said that some employers cannot be forced to cover birth control in their health plans if that violates their religious beliefs. Contraceptive coverage had been mandated for employers under Obamacare. The decision was five to four with Chief Justice John Roberts providing the swing vote and you may recall he was the swing vote in the ruling two years ago that upheld most of Obamacare. Jan Crawford has more about today's decision and what it'll mean. We say no way. The case was a political firestorm hitting women's rights against religious freedom. Inside the court, the justices also were deeply divided and sharply at odds in their approach to the case. The majority decision by Justice Samuel Alito emphasized religious rights and marked the first time the court has allowed a for-profit corporation this type of religious exemption. It was a victory for family-owned companies like the Hobby Lobby chain of arts and crafts stores, whose owners David and Barbara Green challenged the law. The court said the health care law clearly imposes a substantial burden on the Greens' religious beliefs because it requires them to offer coverage for specific forms of birth control, like the morning-after pill and the IUD, which the Greens believe facilitate abortion. Despite Congress having embraced exactly the kind of religious anarchy he had warned against in Employment Division versus Smith, Justice Scalia joined Justice Samuel Alito's majority opinion in Hobby Lobby. Scalia did not write a separate concurring opinion, however instead offering only silent support for the court's ruling. Ultimately, the legacy of Employment Division v. Smith is defined more by the legislative response to it 
than its actual holding. A federal statute, not the First Amendment, is now the primary tool for religious objectors to vindicate their beliefs and carve out exceptions to general laws that otherwise apply to all. Thank you for listening to this episode of Heightened Scrutiny. You can support this podcast by visiting its website, scrutinypod.com, by liking it on Facebook, by following it on Twitter, and by subscribing to it via iTunes, Google Play, and other podcast services. A very special thanks is owed to donor Matt for his generous contribution. You too can support Heightened Scrutiny financially. Heightened Scrutiny has launched a campaign through Patreon. You have the option to donate on a recurring monthly basis any amount you choose to help keep Heightened Scrutiny going. Producing this podcast is not free, and it takes a considerable amount of time and effort. If you enjoy it, please check out patreon.com slash scrutinypod for more information. Again, I hope you enjoy this episode, and we'll keep tuning in. Thank you.